You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our spiritual journey to God. Greetings, Pilgrim, and welcome to another episode of The Myth Pilgrim. Firstly, a big thanks to all of you who gave such positive feedback from the previous episode about Anakin and fighting temptation. Uh, I'm glad you got a lot out of it, because I did too, and your uh, your encouragement really gives me confidence to keep writing episodes on these more uh, confronting topics. Indeed, today we'll be exploring another confronting topic, and I pray that we'll also have the grace to journey through it in the right spirit. Evil, temptation, and the devil are never easy topics to talk about in any context. So today, we'll be allying ourselves with the mind of Tolkien, whose Ring of Sauron gives us such a profound image of evil and how it works in the real world. And hopefully we'll have a little fun along the way too. Now, you probably have your own favourite characters in The Lord of the Rings, and my casual asking of people around dinner tables and youth groups have indicated that Samwise Gamgee, Aragorn and Eowyn frequently come out as favourites. And fair enough, because they'd probably be on my list too. But my job this episode is to help you make friends instead with those characters who have been compromised by the ring in some way. Like the Golems, the Boromirs and the Steward of Gondors. By make friends with them, I don't mean that you actually have to like them, but simply to recognise that we are probably more like them than we realise. Are you ready for the challenge? Let's begin. In Catholic Christian theology, evil is both an exterior reality and an interior reality. Something that's out there and in here. I'm pointing towards my heart. The genius of Tolkien's story is that he is able to express evil in both these external and internal forms. For example... The character Sauron is clearly an evil that's out there in the world, you know, raising up an army, seeking to dominate Middle-earth through Mordor, Isengard and beyond. On the other hand, Sauron's ring also seeks to bring about evil, but more from within the characters. Subtly and seductively, it corrupts its wearer's noblest desires, while at the same time amplifying the little evil that's already within. It turns loyal human princes into bickering traitors. I tried to take the ring from him. And peace-loving hobbits into thieving murderers. We of course recognise both types of evils at work in our day-to-day lives. As we now go through three possible ways Sauron's ring is at work today, pay special attention to what extent this evil is something exterior to you and to what extent this evil is something interior to you. For failing to recognise either can be quite disastrous. But the contrary is also true. Recognising the ring in our lives actually sets us free from its dark spell and allows us to fly towards God instead. And that can't be a bad thing at all. The first example of the ring at work has actually become so normalised today that it often goes undetected. 
In episode three of the Myth Pilgrim, I had explored how the brilliance of the Lord of the Rings lay in its unshakable theme of hope. Well, the weapon of Sauron is exactly the opposite of hope. It is despair. While hope allows us to do the most daring things in even the most hopeless of circumstances, despair drags us into the dark, rendering us unable to take right action and unwilling to confront the evil that's before us. It was despair that causes Boromir to act rashly and snatch at Frodo's ring, and it was also despair that wilts Lord Denethor, the steward of Gondor, when Gondor needed his right judgment the most. Sadly, our media tends to thrive upon despair, especially the way the news is presented. Now, if by chance you tend to emerge from a newspaper or social media newsfeed feeling hopeful and nourished, then this next section may not be as relevant for you. But for the rest of us, you will agree I'm not being dramatic when I suggest that the news, like the ring, wields incredible power over how we feel and especially how we act. English philosopher Alain de Botton puts it this way. Quote, the media's power is so significant because the stories the news deploys ends up having a self-determining effect. If we are merely told that our countrymen are crazed and violent, we will be filled with fear and distrust every time we go outside. If it's implied that all politicians lie, we'll quietly put our idealism and innocence aside and mock every one of their plans and pronouncements. End quote. The media is powerful because it shapes how we see reality and where our attention is directed. To illustrate, think of the power a tabloid has to make its headlines suddenly become our headlines too. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what should be making headlines in my life today, at this very moment? It might be the foul turn in the economy, but it might also be my marriage that needs urgent attention. My headlines could be the latest updates on COVID-19, but it could also be my little sister who has finally mastered her release on the piano. And again, my headlines could be the mass protests breaking out overseas, but it could also be the Holy Spirit quietly drawing me towards an exciting new occupation if I had the heart to hear him. See, if we discern with God what else should be making headlines in our lives, we can greatly limit the media's power over us, especially in its monopoly of bad news. And discerning what else should be making headlines doesn't necessarily mean we shut out all the bad news. Rather, it means we actually have a better chance to interpret that bad news with the Holy Spirit. It means we will interpret the bad news like how we interpret the bad news in, say, the Bible or in the Lord of the Rings for that matter where we explore both human dysfunction and the Christian hope that arises from it. But if we no longer see God's hand at work in the messiness of our world, a paralyzing despair can soon rush in to fill the void, and that is the desired effect of both the ring and the enemy. Okay, now we move on to the second way Sauron's ring is powerfully at work today. It is namely this, the fracturing of communities. The old maxim that love unites and evil scatters is as true for the Bible as it is for the Lord of the Rings. For example, cast your mind back to the scene of the Council of Elrond, where representatives from all the races and peoples of Middle-earth gather in Rivendell to decide the fate of the ring. All is going rather well until the ring was placed right in the midst of them on the pedestal. 
What began as a peaceful gathering turns into a bickering storm of accusations, mistrust and name-calling, where even Gandalf loses his cool. And all the time, the ring, this golden illustrious circle of nothing, smugly sits on the stone pedestal, victorious. Thus is the effect of the ring on community. Later, it splinters the fellowship by devouring Boromir. Then it turns Frodo against his best friend, Sam, and even divides Smeagol from himself, splitting his personality, as it were, into two. Where the seeds of division are sown, beware the ring of power at work in our midst. Now, how this divisiveness looks in our world is sadly manifold. I could focus on the more obvious fracturings like the growing mistrust between nations or the increasing divide between the left and the right in our politics. I could also focus on the enemy's hellish wedge fired into family and marriage, especially here in the West, as he actively attempts to undermine the most fundamental building block of our society. These are all powerful evidences of the ring at work today. But this episode, I will focus on an equally sinister division the enemy is working hard to accomplish. The division within the church, the body of Christ. By church, I can mean anything from a small local parish to the entire universal church, encompassing all our baptised brethren. But first, some perspective. There are, as St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, many parts to Christ's body, just like there are many parts to the human body. There are eyes and feet and hands, etc. And each member of this body must faithfully fulfill the part God ordained them to fulfill. This means that each different member will naturally emphasize different functions within the church. Some will emphasize liturgy, others evangelization, others still her social teaching. Individually, some will be more gifted to embody the mercy of Christ, while others his justice, and others still his works. No single member, be they a leader or a movement or a religious order, can claim to express Christ perfectly. Only in humbly working together in the one body can we become the best representation of Christ today. Each member's difference in emphasis, however, can also lead to a difference in opinion. And where there is disagreement in the body of Christ, there is definitely a time and place to have these discussions. However, when this happens, I like Brian Holdsworth's analogy that it must be done in the loving spirit of a family dispute, rather than, say, political warfare. For example, in The Lord of the Rings, the historical disagreements between elves and dwarves does indeed need to be worked through, but not during the Council of Elrond, and not at the expense of the more urgent mission at hand, the saving of Middle-earth. Likewise, discussion about the differences in church opinions needs to be had, but in the right spirit and in the right forum. Regrettably, social media makes this particularly tricky today, not least because, as you know, social media posts thrive off outrage, bracket, a Twitter storm, and enough statistics have indicated that the more emotionally charged a post is, the faster it propagates. While it's not the mission of the Myth Pilgrim to discuss social etiquette, here's a few considerations I find helpful when discussing particularly divisive matters in the church. Firstly, do not forget the real mission of the church. For every ounce of energy spent on the church's family disputes, so much more should be spent on propagating the good news to those who need it most. 
And if the very way the church's family disputes take place actually alienates her from the very people she's trying to reach, then much greater discernment is needed on our behalf. Remember, Sauron's ring always seeks division as its end goal. And this division can happen not only between the members of the church, but between the church herself and the rest of society. The second helpful point when discussing divisive church matters. Be very discerning when listening to alarmist voices claiming the church today is in especially great peril. Not because she isn't necessarily, but because the church is always in great peril. Even a casual glance down our history will demonstrate that human corruption, nepotism, schisms, holy wars, anti-popes, dissent and the sacking of entire Christian nations have punctuated the church since the time of the apostles. Church crises shouldn't surprise us because the church is both made up of terrible sinners and she will always meet opposition from the ways of the world. What should surprise us is that the church still stands at all and that it will do so till the end of time because God's Holy Spirit is always sustaining it and renewing it. Remember, Christ's universal church is far bigger than the crises the media portrays. And God's Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in so many parts of the church typically unseen by the media. In schools, on the streets, safe houses, hospitals and remote communities, just to name a few. A new springtime of grace is blowing through the churches in places like Latin America, Asia and Africa. So be very discerning listening to voices proclaiming doom and decadence for the church, for such voices carry the ring of despair. Listen instead to the St. John Paul II's, Therese Lazur, John Henry Newman, Mother Teresa, Maximilian Colby, Mary MacKillop. Pay attention instead to these holy men and women who knew social and church dysfunction better than we do and yet allowed Christian hope to illuminate their mission for the world. And thirdly, be very careful not to think another member of the church as your enemy. There is an enemy, capital E enemy, and he is not that member. We may have legitimate grounds to passionately disagree with a fellow Christian, but by order of our baptism, we are family with them first. And you wouldn't label your own family member with categories like lefty, traddy, liberal or heretic. Such labels leave little room for authentic dialogue and listening and furthers the very division that Christ passionately prays against in John chapter 17. Perhaps come back instead to St. Paul's image of the body of Christ. Acknowledge first the good another member is bringing before criticising or questioning his or her position on X. (laughs) For X might prove to be invaluable at another time and in another context. Going back to Tolkien's fellowship, both the mercy of Frodo and the scepticism of Sam were needed regarding how to relate with Gollum. Even if both Sam and Frodo got it disastrously wrong sometimes. But, divisive as Gollum was to the hobbits, they never lost sight of who their real enemy was, nor the real mission that lay before them, the destruction of the ring and the saving of Middle-earth. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, please subscribe to it so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you'd like to be notified by email every time a new episode is released, hop onto the website at themythpilgrim.com to register.
The third way we're going to explore of how Sauron's ring is at work today is in some ways the most important one, for it lies at the root of everything else we've explored. And this final working of Sauron's ring of power is very much about power, or at least the illusion of power. Power as in, who is sitting on the throne in my heart? Who is the king of my heart, myself or God? Whose will guides my life and informs my decisions? Let's revisit our friend the steward of Gondor, Lord Denethor. Consider the fact that Lord Denethor is rightfully the steward of Gondor, that is, until the return of the rightful king, Aragorn. However, when Aragorn does show up, Lord Denethor refuses to budge and refuses to submit to his king. So it can go with the thrones of our heart. Once upon a time in our lives, it may also have been proper that we sat on that throne because we hadn't yet known Christ. But having now heard the good news about the return of the king, Jesus Christ, do we allow him to take his rightful place? How able are we to surrender our will to God's will every day? For the simple fact is this, the ring acting in the world outside us is powerless to act inside us if we are obedient to God's will. To a soul whose will is surrendered to God, the enemy is already defeated. Contrast the heavy and oppressed steward of Gondor with the lightness and humility of Samwise Gamgee. Having a pure heart, Sam never sought to control or manipulate others when he didn't get his own way, and that happened quite a lot. But he was definitely no pushover either. He fiercely stood up against evil, both without and within, and at many times became the moral compass for Frodo himself. And yet, unlike the steward of Gondor, Sam consistently submitted himself to the service of a higher call. To Frodo, his master, to the vow he made to the council, and ultimately, to the providential hand of good working in Middle-earth. His humility enabled him to journey so closely with the ring, and yet march right into the hells of Mount Doom without being affected by it. Dear friends, while it's vital that we recognise Sauron's ring in our lives, let the character of Sam be our model and guide as to how to overcome it. When despair, division and a desire for absolute control threatens to overcome our lives, think of Sam, so that we can learn from the hobbit that Tolkien himself called the real hero of the story. We have arriveth at the end of our exploration of Sauron's ring. I really pray this episode itself has revealed and hopefully even dispelled some of the ways the ring has been working in your own lives, for it certainly did that for me. I must say all these recent episodes about temptation and evil have been the most difficult episodes to write in terms of striking the balance between honest truth and Christian hope. Do let me know how you went with this episode and do feel free to offer perspectives on how you see some of those issues we've covered today. Okay, so the practical pilgrim exercise today will be as follows. Why not try a media fast or even a social media fast for a week or so? Or maybe, related to this, for whatever time you spend reading the news, spend double that time reading the good news, the Bible. Experience both the resistance and the freedom in doing so. And as you try this, observe any changes you have in the way you engage with reality. Alright, there's the challenge. Until next time, dear pilgrim, 
journey forth, take care and God bless.